Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drakes. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing great, Sarah. Yourself? It's a great day. I woke up on the right side of the dirt, so that's hey. always a plus. Yeah, still <laughs> vertical, right? That's right. <laughs> well, you you like to look for those that are on the wrong side of the dirt, or at least some part of them is on the wrong side of the dirt, right? I do, yeah. I, I have a lot of fun ghost hunting. Yeah, you just did that recently, didn't you? I did. I just got back from a week in New York State, and we did two locations there. So, did you see anything anything interesting? There were a few things that happened that couldn't explain or debunk. So, it was a successful trip. That's great. We'll have to do like a special dirty drinks episode, like Blair Witch Project, and have a team building <laughs> thing with a with a camera and audio, and and see where that goes. I know a few people in locations that are close that we could get into to record at. So <laughs> that be careful would be, what you wish for. <laughs> that would be very interesting. <laughs> I I frighten easily, so I might need to hold somebody's hand or something. <laughs> it gets pretty dark out there. Yeah, it does get pretty dark. I do my best work when it's dark in abandoned buildings. So, Well, good. So what's going on today? Well, today we have another awesome guest, and I am actually going to let you introduce him since you have a previous relationship. Yeah, super excited to have Raj Karnatak join us today. He was actually, when I first started at UNMC, he was one of the first fellows that I worked with. I, I don't know if that was a a blessing or a curse for him uh, on our general uh, ID service, which is super busy. And he was extremely patient with me as I learned my way through academic medicine again after being out of it for almost 20 years. So thank you for joining us, Raj. Good to have you. Thank you, Dr. Stalin. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. And uh, you know, all the greats of UNMC has been here. So it's an honor to be here. Yeah, so Raj, you graduated, what, about three years ago now? Is that? Two, two years, yeah. Two years, okay. Yeah, yeah. Time, time flies. Two and a half, time I guess two and a half almost, isn't it? Yeah, two and a half almost, and time flies. And in the last two and a half years, you know, we have been aged, I think, I feel like I've been aged 20 years. Well, you did a year of critical care after ID, right? Yeah, that was three years now. You are right. Yeah. Good. Well, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, where you. are you? you for where me. are you practicing currently? So uh, I am currently in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm an infectious disease and critical care doc. And I mostly do uh, critical care. I'm an intensivist, and I am also practicing ID, but uh, but majority of my practice is critical care right now. Very cool. Yeah, we've had um, Dr. Cockcut on the show, and she is a similar double boarded subspecialty person and so um interesting how that combination kind of works together and comes together what what are your thoughts it 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 seems like over time sometimes people have to kind of pick one or the other because they don't necessarily always work schedule wise different group wise those kinds of things 
Yeah, those some of the things that are, that was very challenging after coming out of fellowship was finding the right match. You know, uh, how much infectious diseases and how much critical care you want to practice. That would be very challenging. But but I think in a similar way, uh, talking to the other fellows and other specialties like. Uh, the way uh, most people get critical care trained, uh, either uh, you do a critical care fellowship after internal medicine uh, for two years, uh, and you know, you know, or you do a pulmonary critical care. The traditional is pulmonary critical care, and most of the people, though, gra- those who graduate from pulmonary critical care, they also end up kind of not getting what exactly they want. You know, that's where you know, my co-fellows, uh, that's what I experienced. You know, when the pulmonary critical care fellows were graduating, and you know, they were not getting like exactly 50-50, or, or you know, they kind of, I think. I think when you when you go in the arena of you know mixed practices, you kind of have to work your way to find out the right right match for you. Yeah. So by critical care, you mean uh, caring for people who are obviously critically ill. So most of the work then is in the ICU, correct? Right. Right. The the way the model these days are, the intensive care units are closed. So intensivists is mostly like a hospitalist, but it's inside the ICU. Like you take your really sick patients and. And, and, and most of the critical care is multidisciplinary. You know, you've got to coordinate with a lot of people. And, and that helps, you know, being there physically present inside the unit and having that 24 seven in-house intensivist model that kind of gives, uh, you can deliver a lot of, a lot of care at bedside. So then being out and practicing for two-ish years, how has the pandemic influenced your experience as a critical care and infectious disease? specialist? So, uh, you know, as you know, I, I did infectious disease fellowship and, and then after that, a year of critical care. And uh, when I graduated, uh, last six months of my critical care fellowship was almost like in, you know, that's when pandemic started. And, you know, I came right on time in July 2020. That's where I came out of my infectious disease and critical care fellowship. And and, and that was uh, that was the time when, when COVID was at its peak. And I was at, at the UNMC in the first six month of pandemic where, where uh, you know, we were going through uh, making new COVID units. And, and you guys remember we had a, you know, on the seventh floor, we had a COVID unit that was completely full. Uh, you know, I worked there a few months and uh, it, was a, it was a scary time at that time. And, and we were, uh, you know, in the first six months, I would say first year, like we didn't have any vaccines or anything. And, uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of uh, fear of unknown at that time. So I, you know, first few months, I, you know, UNMC being a great place, you know, where the history wise and infection controlled and everything at UNMC, how great it is. Uh, but, but we are still kind of learning a lot about this virus. And, and we really didn't know what exactly to do. And, and I would say initial few months, I, I was not sure if I'm going to survive. Seriously, <laughs> it was so bad. I, I was scared. And I remember one of these days that on the seventh floor, I was with, uh, you know, I was just coming out to after intubating a patient with COVID and I, I was kind of touching my mask and kind of adjusting it. And, and I saw Dr. Hewlett house. So she said, oh, be careful with that, that mask. That kind of stuck me like, it just, it's just so scary it was at that time. And, and having been, you know, so many different waves, you know, alpha was there and then delta was really horrible, you know, the kind of kind of COVID we saw with Delta variant, uh, you know, a lot of barrel trauma and, and really, really high ventilator mortality. And, and first year have, doing that without uh, any vaccine or anything, it was very scary. And not trying to, uh, you know, throw stones at anybody or anything like that, but what difference did you see between coming from UNMC as a fellow 
to kind of, uh, uh, I assume you're at a community hospital in Milwaukee and just kind of how um, attitudes and approaches to things were a little bit different. So coming from a large academic center like UNMC and, and, and you know, the practice I am in right now, it's, it's not fully academic center, but it's a very large center and it's one of the largest hospitals in Wisconsin. Uh, it has pretty much, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a large multi-organ transplant program, and you know, they have you know, done more than thousand heart transplant, and there's a li big liver transplant unit. So, so the hospital system is pretty big, and uh, you know, it's it's a little bit different being in uh, private practice than being in academic setting in terms of uh, uh, like challenges wise. You you uh, you know, you directly interact with the, all the subspecialty. They're not, not they're not fellows. They're not residents. Uh, we do have some degree of trainees here, but not in critical care. Uh, the, the biggest challenge I would say that uh, for me was uh, uh, once you know when you are in fellowship, you always have an attending besides you. You know you can <laughs> you can you can you can do things. Even patient is critically ill, you can have you know you, you can sound very very smart and and you know do things uh, you know infectious disease or critical care, either of those, but. At the end of the day, the buck stops to the attending, and and you always have somebody. You know, you, uh, you th that that uh, that uh, that liberty of going to somebody and kind of saying, "Oh yeah, I'm okay." That that suddenly goes away, and and when that goes away, then you're by yourself out there. I think in my uh, in my uh, case, it was a little bit easier for me because uh, actually before even fellowship, I was a hospitalist for for four and a half years. And I, uh, I did practice uh, both academic hospital medicine and also a little bit of private practice when I was out there. And, and I had to go through some of that, you know, self-decision-making. I think that helped me in a way that when I came out of fellowship. Yeah, that's cool. That's, uh, that's very cool. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. So we got young Raj. How does he end up going into medicine? What's, uh, what's, the, what's the journey for you? So I grew up in Northern India and uh, there's a small town called Nanital. And, you know, that's where it's like 200 miles north of uh, New Delhi. And, wow. uh, you know, growing up uh, to the school, I, I really didn't know anything about, you know, much about, you know, what I'm going to do in my life. My dad, uh, he used to uh, work as a, you know, local, uh, local health department. He, what he used to do, he's retired now. What he used to do is they used to do the, basically infectious disease surveillance, I would say in today's term. They will collect samples, you know, if there's any malaria going on, they will collect blood samples and do smears and they will do water samples for cholera if that is going on and typhoid. Uh, so, uh, uh, and similarly with the tuberculosis, put in samples. So, uh, and, and they, he reported to a doctor and the local physician there, the primary care doctor that, you know, there was a primary healthcare center. Uh, that was my, so I, I had no idea what I'm going to do in my life. So I, you know, I knew that kind of uh, uh, one of my cousin who was actually living in a different city and I really admired him and he went to med school and I had some exposure to uh, him through my dad and I've seen the doctor in my life, but I didn't really know how to become a doctor. But my cousin who lives somewhere else, he went to med school. Now I knew like there's a process. And so so that's why I thought this is a, some of, something I would do. That's great. Um, when you started med school, did you always know you wanted to go get into ID and critical care, or was that something that kind of developed over time? So in, in med school, you know, you do all kind of different rotations. You know, you go to and and 
I enjoyed going to every different specialty. Like, you know, you go to surgery or, or anything pathology. I, I just loved it. And I, like, I enjoyed all of them. But, you know, at the end of the day, when, when it came to internal medicine, like, you know, my, every time I'll go back to internal medicine, I would like look up to my, you know, attendings. That, I mean, this is what I wanted to be in my life, the internal medicine. That's why I, I really didn't know that if there's something like an infectious disease specialty exists or how to become a critical care doctor, you know, initially I didn't know, but later on, you know, I, I thought about it a little bit, but, but the start in the med school, it was all internal medicine. I always wanted to be a good internal medicine doctor. And, and that's what my goal was, uh, you know, after, after, uh, you know, third year and fourth year of med school, I, I think, you know, that's when internal medicine really, uh, you know, I, 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 I thought that this will really suit to my personality. Awesome. So did you go to your initial med school in India then, or did you come to the States for that? So I did my medical school in India, the Himalayan Institute of Medical Sciences is, is up north, almost like 150 miles north of Delhi. And uh, that's where I did medical school. And after that, I, uh, I so in internal medicine, I was really, really fascinated from the from the book, you know, the Harrison's textbook of internal medicine. That's what, you know, from third year of med school, we were all over that book. Like, and and we were so much fascinated about how medicine is practiced in the West and especially in the US. And uh, somehow some of my friends got into this, like they wanted to come to US to do their internal medicine residency. And I, I thought I should try that too. And I, after med school, I started uh, started looking into it. And, and started taking the US, uh, USMLE, the, the US medical license exams, then you have to take several steps. Um, while I was doing that, at the same time, I started taking some clinical experience in India. I started working in a cardiac anesthesiology. It was a in-job training. I did that almost a year, a lot of cardiac surgery OR, and I did four or five months of emergency medicine. And then I moved here to my internal medicine residency. And I think that training was really the starting point when I started liking critical care. Pretty interesting. And then you, um, and the, so then after your training, you said you went and did hospitalist work for a little while. Yeah, I, you know, I just said that from the med school, it was always internal medicine for me. Yep. And I, I said, you know, this is what I want to do. There's no fellowship. I'm never, never going to go to fellowship. And, you know, I'm going to be an internal medicine doctor. That was, you know, I always wanted to be. And uh, I went to Penn State, Hershey, where the, you know, I was a academic hospitalist and, and they have a residency program in med school. And, and I worked there for two and a half years. And uh, in 2015, I got married and I moved to Virginia where my wife was practicing at that time. It was, I took a private hospitalist job. I was there for a year and I kind of got bored. And then, then you know, the things changed, you know, the way I, uh, I looked at medicine, like uh, now here I am and four years of practicing internal medicine. And every day, uh, you know, if I needed, if I have a most complex patient, if I needed a specialist to help me out with that was infectious diseases. Like literally, you know, if, if this is something nobody could take care of and I, I have no clue, nobody can tell me anything about this patient. You can call an ID consult, they will tell you something about it. And, and you know, and the, so much of bread and butter of internal medicine that we did, the C. difficile, pneumonias, you know, hospital medicine is all inpatient medicine. It was so much of that was like 50, 60% was uh, for uh, infectious diseases practice. So, so, so I, uh, I really wanted to see really sick patients and I really wanted to get better at it. So when I was applying for fellowship, 
you know, it was, it was uh, then I learned that there are opportunities to combine infectious disease and critical care fellowship. I, you know, I was, I was all over it because that was exactly you know, with where I come from. <laughs> like, I, I just loved it. Do you feel like growing up with your dad being in public health and seeing that process on a regular basis, has that impacted the way you practice? Absolutely. I, I didn't know anything else apart from infectious diseases at that point. Like, you know, I, I still like being so young and I still know about typhoid, cholera, malaria, tuberculosis. It's still something about it. Like, you know, it's a waterborne disease. That's a great thing. And to start with, if, if we're talking about typhoid, cholera, and malaria from mosquitoes and tuberculosis, you know, you have to be staying away. I mean, I, I think that uh, that exposure kind of... Uh, uh, that was, you know, I, I knew my dad was doing something was very good for the society. And, you know, I, I like that. And I think that also one of the things that attracted me to, towards medicine. And did you even know where Nebraska was when you started on this journey? <laughs> so, no, I have no idea where Nebraska was. <laughs> I have never heard of Omaha. <laughs> I, <laughs> We're, we're a part of those flyover states, right? Yeah, and somehow you hear you end up, huh? That's it's, it's crazy how Virginia. things work out. Yeah. Yeah, so my wife actually, uh, she has done all her training. You know, she did a residency and fellowship both from Nebraska. So after I got married and, you know, when I was applying and, and you know, I was, I was aware. And also uh, the UNMC has been, you know, UNMC is pretty much, uh, when I was practicing hospital medicine, when I was at Penn State, uh, you know, in 2014, when Ebola happened, um, you know, everybody saw how UNMC led the world. Like I was here, I was, I was practicing in a large academic center and I had literally no clue what to do if some a patient with Ebola walks into our doors. I, I was on call actually. I don't know, like that was time, there was so much of fear and, and we were seeing on TV here, this Nebraska Medical Center, they they are, they literally know what to do with this. Like that was crazy for me. And, and when I was interviewing, I, I know I said, oh, I would have an opportunity at going to UNMC. I, I would take it any day. Uh, so, uh, so I think uh, uh, you know, from my wife knowing Omaha and also, you know, while I was practicing and, and seeing, uh, you know, uh, how great of the place UNMC was, I think both of, both of those things kind of inspired me to, uh, to kind of apply to this fellowship. Uh, and, and when you meet people at, at UNMC, especially infectious diseases, you know, like it's, I mean, the moment you meet them, you, you're just going to love them. Like it's just, it's just like, so the moment I talked to Dr. Rupp and Dr. Van Schoonwell, I told my wife, like, these people are so awesome. You know, if I get an opportunity, I'll just take it on a heartbeat. Like that was so great. We're going to use that part in our next Chamber of Commerce uh, uh, commercial. <laughs> 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 no, that's great. That's great. We're certainly glad that uh, that you came here. And and so um, going from, you know, it sounds like, I mean, you had a very good idea in your head. You wanted to be a good, good physician and you viewed being a good physician as being a great internist. And, you know, your model was Harrison's textbook of internal medicine, which, you know, back when I trained, there was actually a textbook. I assume when you did it, it might have been an, uh, you know, a, a, an electronic version. But but in any case, um, uh, that was kind of your vision. And then you transformed wanting to be able to take care of sick patients. So you did infectious disease and critical care, which definitely we have our share of sick patients. So when you got into it, was it what you thought it was going to be? 
so when, when you know the way infectious disease and critical care programs are now right now going on and, and, and the, the programs are not really well designed you know you have to do the infectious disease and you have to do critical care uh, separately uh, you know there are there are very few combined programs at this point and, and they're coming up the this specialty is just gaining more and more traction now especially with the pandemic and and uh, you know, there's a lot of synergy from uh, from in the ICU to have infectious disease trained physician in the ICU. I think a lot of, lot of synergy in the special in the practice. Uh, uh, you know, I I would have uh, you know I I absolutely love both part. I loved my infectious disease fellowship at Nebraska, and I loved my critical care fellowship there. Uh, but but I wish it could have been more uh, more conjoined, like in terms of the, the the I was the first fellow getting into this fellowship. So, uh, you know, I wish uh, we could have some kind of combined structure into place that uh, then the transition could have, could have been easier. Uh, but having said that, you know, this is something brand new and, 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 you know, you kind of have to make your way up, I guess. Sounds like you've got some work to do, Rick. I guess, my gosh. <laughs> I know when I was an ID fellow, the one thing I wanted to learn how to do was get do a BAL because we had so much pneumocystis that I had to try to get somebody to Bronx so that I could get get a, a BAL so we could do a, an accurate uh, DFA on to get a diagnosis back then. Um, you know, so you guys don't have as much of that anymore, but back in the 90s, that was the way, the way of the world. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say that there's a, there's definitely a room for infectious disease fellowship to be more uh, procedural based, more proceduralist based, because the way other specialties are doing it, you know, I think at some point we'll have to say that, you know, if we are just going to do it because uh, it, it's, uh, it's not something that uh, is not doable, I think, you know, we have... Uh, uh, we have, uh, I, I don't know if, if IDSA is doing something in this front, but I think we have an opportunity that we can integrate so many procedures into infectious disease fellowship and we can have a, a third year of procedural or critical care or anything else. Uh, that way, uh, you know, uh, I think we can sell our fellowship better. Uh, it just, uh, it just that hasn't been done yet, but I, I think it's, it will eventually get there because, uh, because opportunities are tremendous. That's an interesting idea, and I think it certainly is probably true in, in the community where you don't have a bunch of residents and fellows that want to do all of those procedures and whatnot. Even if you could do a, a bedside ultrasound and see if something needs tapped, whether you know a, a pleural effusion that's really at the end of the day, if you've done a bunch of them and know what you're doing, it's not a complicated procedure, but you just have to have the volume to, to be comfortable with doing it. Right. And, and, you know, even hospitals and internal medicine people are doing it these days, you know, the ultrasound training, it doesn't really take much to learn the basic skills and just to be this, know what's this, how you can do it safely and also know when not to do it. I think if it's complicated, you can just refer it to somewhere and yeah, using the ultrasound guided taps, thoracentesis, taking a BAL sample, all doing a lumbar puncture or tapping the belly, tapping a knee. I guess, you know, you don't you know, tap a prosthetic knee, that's fine. But otherwise, you know, these are simple things to do. And, and this has been, I think in critical care, we are also learning same same way. The ultrasound is very, very new. We are doing how to, we are learning how to do the bedside ultrasound and bedside echocardiography. We, we you know, we, we are not gonna do the advanced echocardiography, but we can learn, you know, how, what the, how the left ventricle is squeezing, you know, what the function is, what the RV function is. I think the basic things we can learn. And it has shown that even like one hour training, uh, in the basic ultrasonography skills, uh, the, the the fellows were able to get uh, most of the thing correct. 
like even one hour of training of ultrasound. And, uh, and, and, and if we have to use that for the bedside decision-making, I think we should do it. I think, I think same way, uh, as you said, especially in the private practice, and there are a lot of opportunities and there are, it will just only move the patient care forward. Well, I have absolutely no experience as a fellow, but I think that sounds like a great model. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, when I was in training, obviously we did, we, like if we were tapping a, a lung or a, a belly, we didn't even use ultrasound. We just, you know, did, right. did, uh, you know, upright and decubitus films and we tapped it out and, and, you know, it was definitely, definitely safer. I think when you know what you're doing with an ultrasound probe. And I think the house staff here, the residents in internal medicine all get POCUS training, which I think is amazing. And I think it's a very valuable tool, especially if you're going to an area where maybe you don't have, you know, a bunch of radiologists right on site that, that can help you. If you. As long as you can do something that's diagnostic and then potentially make a therapeutic decision um, or diagnostic decision on that, I think that's, that's key. Yeah, and it's very, you know, as you said, the internal medicine residents are getting this training and we can just, just move forward that training and internal medicine residents are coming to the infectious diseases fellowship. We can just add on that track. You know, in the IC, we use it so much, especially in the shock differentiation. You know, if, if you have a cardiogenic shock or septic shock, I mean, someone have heart failure, their BP is 90 by 60, you know, and, and your UA is positive and they don't, you know, they, they look like borderline hypodensive, what kind of shock it is, you know, it's differentiating that physiology is really key, you know, you need to have that bedside assessment capabilities and, and be a physician, like, you know, uh, it's going to add up a lot to the infectious disease training. I think, I think ED is doing it, internal medicine is doing it, uh, uh, every specialty is doing it, like, uh, I think we just have to start doing it. Sounds like you have a good pilot program to launch. I, I hope so. Like I, so what we are doing recently here is we are trying to develop a fellowship in critical care. Uh, our center is probably not, uh, not up to yet to have an infectious disease fellowship, but I think we definitely can have a critical care fellowship here. So we are working on it. And, uh, you know, we are expecting that from the next year, we'll have critical care fellows here. Uh, you know, some of the work that more in the last six months, you know, we, what we have done is uh, working towards that goal. Very cool. So I am curious, if we go back to your international training, uh, what sorts of challenges did you have coming over to the States as a physician? I think there are, there are, there are challenges in terms of, uh, you know, once you finish your med school there, then you have to transition here, get a visa, take your exam and get into residency that, that also sponsors you as part for, on a visa and, and the, similarly for the fellowship. Uh, there, there are a lot and a lot of challenges, you know, you know, how you're going to come here, where you're going to live and, you know, how you're going to support yourself, how you're going to take exams. And then, uh, then uh, what's your going to be your visa status. And, uh, and, and, and once you get through all this, like, you know, once you finally, you know, initially when you apply, you need some kind of, you know, most of the training programs in internal medicine, they require some kind of U S experience, either a U.S volunteer research or some kind of, uh, you know, a, an externship or some kind of clinical training that you at least observe how the system works in the U.S. So you, you have to get all that before you get into the residency. And once you get into residency, uh, you know, then, uh, then, 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 then it's just easier. You are at least in the system that, that you have is, you know, a sponsor with you. 
And and what happens is a lot of time those uh, you know you remain on visa for very very long time. And uh, once you are uh, once you are on a temporary status for a few years, that's probably okay because you're just still you know uh, you are doing things that you want to do and your your education is going on. But but once you are on a temporary status for 10, 20 years, that gets very hard. What do, what do you exactly do you mean by temporary status and, and uh, you know, different types of visas and how those actually work? I know you're pretty uh, active in this arena, so I think uh, educating us about it will be super helpful. So what ends up happening is uh, as a physician, when you come here as an international medical graduate, you are a sponsored visa. Either you can come on an H-1B visa or you can come on a J-1 visa and that visa only lasts for a few years. Like you can have every two, three years, you can renew that visa, but eventually that you, uh, you want to have a status that you can stay here a little longer. If you're, if you're living in a country for 10, 20 years, being on a, on a visa puts you in a lot of challenges. One example I would give you that during the COVID pandemic, uh, all the international travel was restricted for people on visa. Uh, if you are a U.S. citizen or you are on a green card, you can travel. With the negative test, you can come back here. But if you are on a visa, even if you have lived in U.S. for two decades, uh, you are not allowed to come back once you go out. So somebody might have a family emergency. You know, in my personal life, I myself have noticed that. And, you know, I witnessed that. That uh, you know, in our family, the unfortunate event happened. My wife's family, somebody really young died, but my wife couldn't join the mourning family because of the visa status. Either you have to choose between a life that you have spent a decade of your life to build a career here, between that and or a, a mourning family. That's that's a very tough decision, and and I think when you open up this immigration status for the international medical graduate, when you see the what misery they're going through, it has so many layers into it. Like once you open one layer, and then you know how bad it is inside. Uh, one of my very close friends who comes from the same med school where I went to in India, he's an interventional cardiologist now. now. His father, uh, you know, uh, had a similar situation at the family, so he couldn't go. Like, uh, like uh, it was very painful to see that in, in my, my wife going through, my friend going through this. And uh, so that's why, uh, you know, we started in 2020. 2021, when we started uh, getting collector of you know, all the healthcare workers and trying to say that, you know, uh, we shouldn't be treated this way. And, uh, and when you are living in a country, when you are contributing so much to society and you want to be a good, uh, good citizen, right? That's what we are trying to be. And, but the, at the same time, uh, the, the political environment or, or whatever the immigration laws are, they are so complicated that you are, you are just entangled into it. I, I would say that no human being should be going through this kind of stuff. I don't care about the green card or, or being a citizen or not being a citizen. I don't care about that. The, the thing that bothers me being the violating the right, right of people to at least have travel for the emergency purposes, you know, whatever the way we have to facilitate that, either give them travel passes or whatever permits, we should have ability to, to do that. And, and when these people have been living in the country for more than 10 years, and, and they have been vetted multiple times. Every two, three years, they are renewing their visa and they're being vetted. At the same time, when, we, when they go for a dying family member outside the country, uh, you know, they should be able to come back and do what they were doing, but, but that was not possible. And another example I'll give you, I moved in 2020, July from Omaha to Milwaukee. 
uh, I came here and started working as an intensivist and, and, and do part-time ID consults. And, you know, I do like 10, 20% ID, 80% critical care. That's what my model is. So, uh, so I was, uh, my visa was refiled and, and when my driver's license expired. So when your, uh, when your visa is refiled, it's in the process, you can start working, but you cannot get your driver's license till you have got your visa. So I didn't really have a driver's license for first 10, 20 days of my job. And it's in the middle of the pandemic. You have a critical care doctor in the COVID ICU working. Then you took away their uh, driver's license. What kind of idiotic system would do that? Like that's completely does not make sense to me. And, uh, you know, uh, then I started questioning it. And, uh, you know, why are we even doing it? Like why, if, if you are, if we are saying that we, ha- we are saying that frontline healthcare workers are our heroes, that's what we are saying. At the same time, we're taking over their, their driver's licenses. There are so many international medical graduates in the US, like so many physicians are internationally trained here in this country. And, uh, you know, it, and, and a lot of people don't speak up about these things. So that's when I learned, you know, how bad it is because I, I came to the real life and I, I faced the real life challenges. You know, coming out of training, you know, that opens your eyes, I think, in, in so many different ways. Um, and, and there are so many layers to it. Like, so there are people, those who are living here. And, you know, if someone has a spouse, they are, they are, they are dependent visa. They have, they cannot work like five, 10, 20, how long they can wait not working at home. Like many of them are women and there are many of those women are really smarter than the, you know, their spouses and, and they are, they're just not allowed to work or in, in many cases. So, so, so there are so many challenges to it and, and the international medical graduates go through all this and a lot of them are not really saying anything. There are almost like 20,000 international medical graduates right now in the green card backlog. And, and men, most of this backlog is administrative actually. The USCIS just not processing things, delaying things like, you know, just administrative paperwork delays. There are some of that could be legislative, you know, there are legislative changes need to be made. We are asking the, you know, Congress to do that. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the political process is really messy. You know, we, we went to, uh, I don't know if you know that uh, last year we had, uh, we went to Washington DC to protest. Uh, we went there twice. Uh, Actually, we didn't really want to have a very, very big protest because of the COVID was going on and we didn't want any chaos going on, but we just want to put it there and say that, you know, we, we have to do something about this. We, this can't just keep on going like this. Uh, and, and there are 20,000 physicians. Can you believe that 20,000? And there are nurses. There's so much of nursing shortage right now. And there are like 15, 20,000 nurses there. Uh, and it's not a huge number. It's not a million people that's going to change the demographics of the country. You know, like it's 20,000, 15 to 20,000 frontline physicians are there like that. Uh, but still, it's, uh, it just, uh, and COVID has made it worse in terms of, you know, restrictions to travel, uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of processing delays, that COVID has made it really, really worse. Yeah, and just like you said, the, you know, those 20,000 people, they're not going to make a huge impact on our overall population, but can you imagine the healthcare system and how stressed it would be if those 20,000 providers were just gone? Right, right. That's Americans suffer. You know, at the end of the day in this country, there are so many things that, you know, I don't want to go beyond medicine because that's not my specialty is, you know, if, if you, some of the things we can say, the cost of medicine, the, it's, it's so much messed up. People don't speak up. If we don't speak up, how are we going to change this? 
like uh, you know cost of insulin cost of cost of drug prices are you know look at the how bad it is and people are not out there protesting you know i think people should be protesting for that and we should have a say in this process but the same way you know if we are uh, if we are frontline worker and you are being treated uh, you know very unfairly i think we should i think this is one of the things that i learned in unmc that uh, you know uh, Uh, Dr. Piquet said it once, actually. He said, you know, you're an international medical graduate. You're complaining. I, lo- I, I like it. I love it because that, that makes me feel that you're comfortable here. In the same way, you know, Dr. Van Schooler, we can go there, tell him whatever we don't like this. We, we're going to say that. I think that's fair enough. At least we can say things. You know, what, uh, so I, I think we, we need to, uh, we need to uh, look at these problems very, very seriously because once you open the This, this green card backlog story, there's so many layers into it. There's so many, like it's, it's a humanitarian crisis right now, the way things are going on. I was, uh, I, was, I was just taken away by a story. There was a guy here in Chicago who, uh, who was an H-1B visa. And uh, what happens in our job, if you're an H-1B visa, if you lose your job, like if I lose my job, uh, I have 60 days that I can stay in this country. Beyond that, You know, no matter if I lived here a decade, two decades, doesn't matter if I'm on H-1B, I have 60 days. Uh, if I don't have a job, I have to leave the country. So that guy has, you know, there are so many people in backlog. And, and if you look at the population statistics, uh, these people are on the same risk of anybody else. That, you know, that guy got some kind of cancer. It was in the news media. You know, the, the story was out in the news. Like he got, uh, he got two bone marrow transplant and After that, I think he got CAR-T and then all along that he has to like, he worked till one day before he died. He has, he has, to, he has to stay on, he had to stay on his visa till one day before his death because the family will get kicked out, otherwise out of the country, despite, you know, he being so sick. If, if our immigration system is pushing people to that extent and, and especially people, those who are here working legally or, or I don't care legally or legally, you know, all immigrants should have equal rights. Uh, So, so that's, that's, that's really, really bad. If you open up this layer of the, how messy the high skill immigration system in this country is, uh, it will just blow up your mind. Like, are we, are we like, is this even America? Like, you know, the, the biggest, the beacon of freedom and liberty in the world. And that's what I came here to this country and looking up to us. And I left my country for, uh, for the us. And I left my home, left my family. I came here working here. And I, you know, I come in and see all these things that, that troubles me. I think rightly so. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Is there an organization that you're working with on all of these things? So we created this organization called Frontline Healthcare Workers and Green Card Backlog. And uh, we, uh, we do very aggressive uh, lobbying and also activism on social media. Um, you know, we are, uh, you know, almost every senator uh, or congressman is aware about this issue. Like, you know, the, they know about it. Everybody knows about it. Now the thing is what they're going to do about it. You know, the, I, think, I think more, more noise you create, better the system. Actually, we have even seen the changes in the last couple of years, how the system has actually kind of they started responding, saying things, oh, we're going to work on it. Because if, if you sleep on it, <laughs> there's nothing going to happen. So I, I think I think we are right now. There are several bills right now out there. Those those the you know we are, we are very hopeful that uh, they will do something about this. Uh, right now there are several bills. Uh, there's a bill in the Senate. There's they actually there was one hearing today in, in the House. Uh, there's something called Eagle Act. 
how, how they're going to change the high school uh, immigration system in this country. So uh, you know how messy the immigration, you know, the politics is. Uh, it, it's it just take one senator to kill a bill. Like you know, <laughs> there's just somebody's going to say I don't agree on it, whatever their reason might be. You know, what and 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 the, you know some of the, some of these things you know have been some of this advocacy has been going on for the last five ten years, uh, and we'll see where this goes. If there are any listeners out there that want to get involved in this cause, would um, they be able to do anything, or would you have advice on how to help at all? Yeah, you uh, you know you uh, if just reach out to me. I will uh, you know uh, you know I'll get in get in, you know get you in touch with the, our group and 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 you know all like ideas are welcome. I think uh, I think uh, we uh, we need people to speak up. And every uh, what was happening is every friend, every physician, or, or I talk to, they will laugh about it. Some say something, oh yeah, you know, I, I I'm trying it, but not happening. But 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 you know, we, uh, we we actually need to have a united voice. Once we have that, uh, uh, I I I don't know if they're gonna do anything about it, but at least we can say something about this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for that a very passionate discussion. Uh, it sounds extremely difficult, complicated, and agree that if we stop talking and keep any change, uh, you know, to benefit people from the forefront of our minds, we'll just push it away and, it, and it'll be forgotten. So keep uh, keep up the good work. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, a lot of lot of people really, you know, they they don't really understand what it is, so they just don't want to say anything about it. But you know, it's a it's a it, it's something that uh, uh, people uh, yeah, the immigration is something that people just don't want to get involved with a lot of people I would say like if you go to you know they said oh I I don't really understand what it is so I'm just gonna stay out of it and and, and same way the idea says their AMA is there AMA has actually you know sent out letters to support us um, uh, so uh, so there's I, I think we we need to uh, we need to speak up, and if we are saying that we are going to uh, we are going to help our frontline physicians, then uh, we need to do something about it. Well, if we can help, other than giving you an opportunity to talk to all of our listeners today, please let us know. We're happy to, you know, post uh, information on how people can get involved if they want to, or get them in touch with uh, Raj uh, if they would like to speak to somebody directly as well. And if uh, is is there anything locally in Nebraska that you know about, or? or... Yeah, no, thank you, thank you for that. Yeah, in, in Nebraska also, uh, there's an organization called Paha. Uh, that you can join there if you are a physician who is uh, struggling with the same problem. You can join Paha, or or you can join Frontline Healthcare Workers and Green Card Backlog. Uh, you know either of those, uh, and and any advocacy is good. And speak up. Uh, you know, don't just say that you are uh, you're a foreigner here. You know, you uh, you just need to follow the rule. Uh, you know that's not true. We do have to follow the rule, but when you feel like the rule is creating a trouble, the rule is there to change. You know, the last time the immigration rules were changed was in 1990, and and some of these rules we are having trouble because they were made in 1965. Like the society had changed, the way we live today had changed, and we cannot just go by the rules they were made in 1965. So so just speak up. That's what I would say. 
and and I have been, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm complaining so much. I don't want to be just a complainer. And this country has been great. I mean, Nebraska, UNMC, like you know, what I am today as a physician, you know, as an internal medicine doctor, infectious disease critical care, everything I got trained here in this country, and I would not have got any of that if people haven't helped me out and raised me up and got me into this training and have put their unlimited amount of hours of their life to train me. You know, how would I get trained if, if, if the fellowship like Nebraska didn't exist? How would I get trained? I don't know. Like those people, you know, you, you guys do such an awesome job and getting so many people out of the training and, and we are going out and practicing in the society. And, and you know, how would, I, how would I get all that? I, I got tremendous mentors, tremendous support, so much of help. That's all great. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's not that everything is bad, but we are just trying to improve the system. I think, I think, I think this helps out a lot of people, those who are getting in trouble unnecessarily. Yeah, I didn't take it as complaining at all. So I think you're just pointing out some difficulties that, uh, that you've certainly experienced. And, and some of it, as you said, um, it, it's not fair that people have to make a decision between their job, life, and careers and their family back home uh, just because there's a pandemic and they happen to be here on a time-limited visa or something. That just, that, that's not humane. That's not what we do in our country. Right. Yeah, and I just want to say we appreciate you being so candid about everything and, um, you know, speaking freely to get the word out. Uh, like you said, I, there aren't a whole lot of people that want to speak up about it. So it's definitely right. a, and, a good thing. And I'll, and I'll tell you guys, it, it's like so many layers. To, I only have opened the 2% of it. I'll tell you, <laughs> 98% of this layer is still in there. So what is going on with the, with the dependent status, you know, how that changes your life is, is, is just, it's just crazy because there are so many people, you know, if you are on a visa, on a job, it's really hard to change your job. You are stuck there. A lot of people, you know, there's a, there's a room that you can get abused in that job. The similarly, you know, if you're dependent in, uh, you know, if, if your spouse is dependent on you for a visa, that could be an abusive relationship. And then you cannot get out of that relationship. If you do, then you are kicked out of the country. So I don't know how much of that going on. There, there are so many layers of this. Like you keep opening, you will keep seeing so much here. <laughs> It's like peeling back an onion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I appreciate your, your being so passionate about that. And uh, it, like I said, if we can get the word out to people that are interested in, in uh, helping the cause, please let us know. Um, we're getting close to the, to the hour here. Um, so what's, are you going to continue doing, uh, you, you like your job, going to stay there in, in Milwaukee? Any, any changes coming up for you that you see? Uh, you know, the group I have been, I've been, like, as I said, I've been so fortunate, like coming out from med school to my residency to fellowship meeting, such an awesome people. And, and similarly, you know, here in my job, I've been so fortunate. Like my group is so fantastic. Like I, I'm, I have no plan to leave them right now. And, and, you know, coming out of fellowship, uh, you know, I wanted to be, go to a place where uh, where there are always people around. I don't. I didn't want to go to a job where, you know, I'm by myself in the middle of the night. Something happens. There's nobody around. You know, that's not the case here. Like we, four or five of the intensivists, and some of them have like ten years of experience below their belt. They, they're they're around, and I have senior ID partners here. Those were always ready to help me if I have a difficult question for them, and and. You know, uh, I've been fortunate, like, you know, there, there's so much help available and, and so, so much backup. And, you know, I, um, 
Uh, I so far right now, I don't really see any change coming. Uh, until unless the personal life changes or the visa situation changes, or I get a letter, you know, do this or, or you're out, something like that. But uh, but but I don't really see much of the change at this point. Well, hopefully not the latter there. Um, you know, we have a bunch of uh, 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 trainees here, obviously, as you know, and many of them will be making the decision of where to go work uh, here, probably, you know, a lot of them are coming up for this summer to fall for the following year to get done. I think most people that are finishing in June, hopefully already have a, a position. What would what advice would you give them when they go out and start looking at the world? Many of them have been in school for, you know, 20 plus years, and they've never really done this before. So what was important to, to you when you were looking for a, a more permanent position? I, I think, you know, you, uh, you have to look at the job as a uh... You know, first, first you think about yourself, like protect yourself. Like when you go and interview somewhere, uh, you know, make sure that people are, uh, you know, people are being honest about, you know, what they are saying. Uh, you know, you interview and, and you will see right away people, you know, some of the jobs you go, they are, they are not really sure, you know, how the group works, what the partnership is, what the compensation model is. You know, uh, you have to be very, very careful. And, and I would say that uh, go out there, meet the people. Definitely, you know, you have to see if you like the people, that's, that's the first thing, you know, you're going to meet them. You're just, you know, you're going to know that. But, uh, but looking into the nitty gritty details of practice, like, you know, how the practice works, you know, you, you will get surprised if you, I, I'm sure, you know, you have a lot more experience into this, you know, how, this, how, the, how the practice model works, how the compensation works and what, what really they're trying you to, you know, asking you to do. And also look at, you know, uh, what happened, you know, why are they hiring you? Why is it a new position open because somebody left or, or this is something, you know, the practice is getting bigger. And if somebody left, why someone left? I, I think the world is so crazy out there. I would say be very careful because, because, uh, because every place is uh, not as great as UNMC. Yeah, I think that's a big step. It's the business side of medicine. I think we do a good job of training people in the medicine side of medicine, but the business side of medicine, especially when you leave an academic medical center, is very different and very new and can be very scary. And you can get into some bad situations if you don't uh, really know what you're getting into. And I, I always tell all the young people out there that get your contract looked over by somebody that understands contracts. So you can actually know what you're reading and what you're signing, because it may not be exactly what you're being told verbally. There may be other parts in there that you wouldn't necessarily agree to if you didn't have it looked at. Yeah, hundred percent agree. And I met people, those who, you know, ID physicians, those who told me that uh, their contract actually said something, but they are making them do something else. It's a, uh, it's crazy. You know, we have to be very, very careful when you're signing a new job and, and look at the practice very, very carefully. Agreed. Well, thank you for joining us. We certainly appreciate the conversation. Did you have any questions for us? So, you know, this is great. Like, you know, the, what you guys are doing and I enjoy listening to all the episodes, especially all the greats from UNMC. Like, I just love them. Like, I, the moment it's out, I am just going to turn it on and listen to it. Uh, What's the what? What are you seeing? Like the future of this podcast in terms of like uh, you know the, I I understand what I understand is from the for the infection control, but uh, but are you are you trying to have some kind of uh, some kind of like you know we have infection control general club there like you know getting those topics up here, then people can go to a resource where I can tune in and 
and learn all the updates on infection control, something like that, or, or what's your future for this, future vision for this? That's a great question. I mean, we started off, you know, wanting to kind of highlight people in medicine, mostly in infection prevention, as you notice. But we, I mean, we're happy to have anybody that wants to, you know, kind of highlight what they do and why they do it. But we also try to mix in some education for our listeners throughout time. And so um, I guess in my mind, and I'll let Sarah talk too, um, I'd like to continue to evolve because as time goes on, a lot of the um, our uh, guests are going to be people that people have already heard before, but I want to have some sort of uh, educational component to this, where we talk about kind of what they're doing, why they're doing it, what's important, what's the latest in their area of interest that can actually make a difference. You, you know, for even from a single patient level up to you know a community level, hospital level, those kinds of things. So I'd love to continue to evolve to where we are continuing to educate people? I think that's a great answer, Rick. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I have had so much fun doing these podcasts and just learning about all the different people that are out there and what they do. Um, we have recently started, um, I pulled a, a calendar that has like healthcare holidays. So like it's National Nurses Week or it's, you know, whatever. We did one on World Tuberculosis Day. So we've been kind of looking at that calendar and finding some days and if we can find experts on those topics to talk about them. And I think that has been a really fun way to kind of expand what we're doing. Um, we've also had quite a few special episodes that up to this point have been COVID focused um, and we've got one or two more planned. Um, so maybe we can continue on those special episodes and yeah, provide more education for people. I think that's a great idea. And for anybody listening internationally outside of the United States, we'd love to have you on. Uh, that would be a great uh, uh, show to hear your story, um, especially how things are, are different and, and the pandemic has impacted different parts of the world, because that would be a, a great story for our local um, and stateside listeners to hear. Absolutely. Great. Yeah, no, that's that's really good idea. I. I look forward to the next episodes and I love listening to these. Uh, great. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, Thanks, Raj. Thank you. Thank you. And for all the rest of our listeners out there, don't forget to join us on the conversation on Twitter at dirty underscore drinks, and we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.